Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 11. And as you may know, anytime you see the word Lord all in uppercase, that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And I'm going to use that as I read through Psalm 11. Again, give careful attention to God's holy word. In Yahweh, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright behold his countenance. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know your word is truth. Open our hearts and our minds to understand and apply it and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. How many of you have ever experienced an earthquake? A few. They're rare here in Missouri. Our family experienced one when we were living in Illinois. That's also a place where they're rare. Trudy was inside and she heard the dishes rattling in the cabinet. I was on a riding lawnmower out in the lawn and since I was bumping along already, I didn't even realize there was an earthquake until later. But for those who have been close to the epicenter of a major earthquake, it's a very frightening experience. The house violently shakes so that the shelves, cabinets, refrigerator all lose their contents as they crash to the floor. The walls and the foundations crack. Gas lines break and explosions and fires erupt. Buildings and bridges collapse, taking people with them. Many people are injured and killed. When when the very ground you stand on, even bedrock, ripples and shakes, and the foundations of buildings and homes crumble in an earthquake, the devastation and the feeling of helplessness is incredible. As we read Psalm 11, a line that maybe immediately jumps out is in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what do the righteous do? Now, of course, that's not talking about the foundations of buildings that are destroyed in an earthquake. These are the foundations of society and culture. They're our beliefs and our laws and ethics and even our relationships. They're the things that our day-to-day lives are based upon. 
When those foundations are destroyed, the devastation and the sense of helplessness, it's different than from an earthquake. And it's usually much greater. At least with an earthquake, the devastation is quick. Then the rebuilding process begins. But the effects of the foundations of society breaking down, they're usually long-lasting and far-reaching. When a dictator takes over a nation, everything is turned upside down. If you live there, you never know if, when you may be the next person to disappear. And often, something like that happens is accomplished by a military coup. But other times, it's more gradual and goes unnoticed. But in either case, the foundations of daily life are gone. So the question about the foundations of society being destroyed, it it jumps out from Psalm 11, but that's not where the psalm begins. And it's not even the main point of the psalm. This is a psalm of David, and it's actually a psalm with a message of great hope in the face of the foundations being destroyed. The psalm begins with David making a statement. It's, It's a decision that he has already made. It's settled. In Yahweh, I put my trust. Another way to say it would be, In Yahweh, I take refuge. That's his starting point. That's where he stands, and that's it. But his friends, his his associates or or counselors, well, frankly, they're in a panic. We, We don't know the situation that's causing this panic. God hasn't provided that to us, but whatever it is, his counselors are saying, it's time to flee. Get out of here. The wicked are going to ambush you. The wicked are in control. They already have the arrow on the string. The very foundations of society are destroyed. There's nothing left for the righteous to do but escape. Get out of here. But David says, my refuge... My place of safety is in Yahweh. Why do you tell me to flee? Why do you tell me to take my refuge and my trust somewhere else? Now, I need to make a little parenthetical side note here. In the original Hebrew manuscripts, there were no quotation marks. They they didn't have those. So in a text like Psalm 11, we have to figure out, well, how much is said? by David's counselors. It's clear that what they say begins at the word flee in verse 1. Flee like a bird to your mountain. A couple of translations, maybe the one that you have, puts the end of the quote right there after mountain. But most translations and most of the scholars end the quote at the end of verse 3. I believe that makes the most sense with the flow and and the message of the psalm. And seeing it that way, everything from then, the the last line of verse 1 through verse 3, is what is said by David's counselors. And based on the rest of the psalm, their report of the state of things seems pretty accurate. So so that's the side note there. David's counselors are talking from the last line of verse 1 through the end of verse 3. So in that first part of the psalm, Verses 1 through 3, David states his position. His refuge is in Yahweh. 
And then he quotes these friends asking them how. Even with the dire situation they describe, where the wicked are in control and the foundations of society are destroyed, even with that, how can they say that he should flee? How can they tell him to take refuge somewhere other than in Yahweh? And look at the content of the focus of the counsel that they give to David. There's no mention of God at all. The focus is on the wicked. Look, the wicked. The focus is on what they're doing or what they're going to do. It's on the situation. The foundations are destroyed. There's really no hope expressed here except maybe to escape. Now, we have to realize in this psalm, David isn't saying never ever flee. We know there were times in David's life when he fled. For a long time, he was on the run fleeing from Saul, who was trying to kill him. And there was the time his son Absalom claimed the crown and came with an army to take over Jerusalem. At those times, David knew that the right thing to do was to run. And then on the flip side of that, more than once, King Saul was in David's grasp. God had told David he would be king. His friends counseled him to take advantage of the opportunity. Kill King Saul right then. But even though that would have been an easy thing to do in those times, David didn't heed that counsel. Now, David's trust, his refuge, his faith was in God. It was, it was a common thing for him to hear counsel from his friends. And they were God's people. They were people who were on David's side. They wanted what was best for him, looking out for him. But David had to use discernment. Sometimes their counsel was good. Sometimes it wasn't. Was what he was hearing consistent with God and his word or not? We're often in analogous situations. In various ways, we receive advice from fellow Christians or from our friends, from books, recorded talks, blogs, videos. I mean, with the internet, there's more advice than you can shake a stick at, to put it as the way my grandparents would say. And there's no single formula that you can use to know what to do in every situation. There's no sure no surefire five-step method to know what advice to listen to. It requires wisdom and discernment while looking to God and his word, and that's, that's just what David had to do. In this instance, here in verses 4 through 7, David shows why his refuge is in Yahweh and nowhere else. And I want to point out a contrast here right up front. As we noted before, the content of the, the, the counsel that David received was focused on the wicked. Look, the wicked bend their bow. But here, beginning in verse 4, as David responds in faith, his focus is clearly on Yahweh. Verse 4 says, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. Yahweh is the one in whom David trusts. And he starts out by focusing on him, noting where he is in heaven. Now some 
might think, well, yeah, that's part of the problem. God is distant. He's way up there in heaven instead of down here on earth seeing what all we're going through. The word translated temple there is also translated palace. It's the same word. And it's where Yahweh's throne is. He's sitting on his throne. His throne is the place of rule. He's the sovereign king over everything. So what David is communicating is not that God is distant, but that he reigns. He reigns over everything and his throne, his reign is secure. Nothing can change that. So he's not distant and far away. He's also not ignorant nor ambivalent about what's happening here on earth. In fact, verse 4 goes on to say, His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. From God's vantage point, on his throne as he rules, his eyes see everything. If the wicked, as it says in verse 2, are secretly planning to shoot the upright in heart, that's no secret to God. He sees it all and he tests the sons of men. And this testing that he does divides the sons of men. It divides them into the righteous and the wicked. Because God sees all, he is always carefully, accurately assessing the deeds and even the hearts of men so that he can judge them justly and properly. So he rules. He's not distant. He knows what's going on. But what kind of a God is this who sits on his throne in heaven and sees everything? What's the character of Yahweh who tests and divides the sons of men into the righteous and the wicked? And we start getting an idea of that in verse 5. Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. This isn't a God who's distant, indifferent, and uncaring. No, he's intense. He hates the wicked and those who love violence. That's strong language. And it doesn't go very well with the common evangelical saying we have, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. That's not what the text says. God hates the sin and he hates the sinner. His wrath abides on the sinner. In a case we're tempted to think, well, that's, that's just in the Old Testament. Well, no, it's clear in many places in the New Testament as well. John 3.36 says, He who does not believe the Son, Jesus, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The only way we, as, as God's people, escape that wrath is because all the wrath and hatred that was due to us as sinners, was placed on Christ as he died on the cross for us. For all those who do not place their faith in Christ's work on the cross, God's wrath, his hatred, remains on them. And David says that's the state of the wicked. God hates them. What about the righteous? Well, The first line of verse 5 says Yahweh tests the righteous. 
He first tested the sons of men and divided the righteous from the wicked. And now he further tests the righteous. Who are the righteous? They're not those who are perfect. The Bible's clear there, we know. We all sin. So none of us are perfect. The righteous are simply those who, even in the Old Testament, placed their faith in God's provision for them in Christ. So if your faith is in Christ, you're one of the righteous. Yet even though we are God's people, even though we're the righteous ones, forgiven in Christ, we are tested. And this this is like the kind of testing that's done to precious metals to, to purify them. The result of this testing for us is growth and maturity. And David, he is tested here. Rather than running in a panic or taking matters into his own hands, he trusts in his refuge, which is God. So, as he says here, God tests the righteous to refine them. Then in verse 6, it says, Upon the wicked, God will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Well, that's the language of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone. You might wonder, what even is brimstone? Well, it's sulfur. It's a yellow mineral that burns at a hot temperature, giving off a smell like rotten eggs. So if it's raining fire and burning sulfur, it stinks. Everything is catching on fire. And when the gas given off by burning sulfur gets in your eyes and your nose and your throat, it forms acid. So while everything and everyone around you is burning, your eyes, nose, and throat are burning, and you can't breathe. Quite a way to go. Sodom and Gomorrah were judged by God and destroyed that way. And David brings up that picture of judgment of the wicked as a reason why his refuge is in God. That's that's interesting. How does that connect? When the foundations of society are destroyed, how does the judgment of fire and burning sulfur offer any comfort? Well, it brings out a second aspect of the fact that God is on his throne. First, as king, he rules. He's the sovereign king. And second, as king, he is also the judge. David brings out the reality of God's judgment as part of the reason why his trust is in Yahweh. David takes his refuge in God because God is the judge and he will render judgment. Most of the time when you think of judgment, that's a a scary negative thing. The thought of judgment and punishment, that's not a pleasant thought. But for the Christian, God's judgment should not be a negative thing. It should be Very positive, actually. In fact, the judgment of God is our hope. Without God's judgment, there is no hope. Because without God's judgment, there's no righteousness and there's no justice. As it says in the first part of verse 7, Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. He hates the wicked. And he loves righteousness and he 
renders judgment. And we see that idea of comfort in judgment in the New Testament as well. The Christians of Thessalonica, they were experiencing persecution. And it sounds like pretty severe persecution. In the first few verses of 2 Thessalonians, Paul seeks to give them comfort, and he does it by talking about God's judgment. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. It says, It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. When God renders judgment, his people are deemed just because of their faith in the work of Christ on the cross. And God's final judgment is our final deliverance. It's our final deliverance from the fallen world, from sin, from persecution, and hardship, and difficulty, and trial. So for the Christian, for the one who is united to Christ, God's judgment is glorious. And as if that's not good enough, it it gets even better. Grammatically, the last line of verse 7 in Psalm 11 could be read in two ways. And the notes in your margin may indicate this. It could be God's countenance. His face beholds the righteous. God sees the righteous. And that was already clear earlier on in verse 4. So it's probably not just repeating that idea here. Grammatically, it could be the other way around. The righteous see God's face. And that makes the most sense with the flow of the psalm. In verse 6, the reward of the wicked is fire and brimstone. Judgment. And in verse 7, the reward of the righteous is to see the face of God. That's our glorification. In 1 John 3 verse 2, It says, we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In God's judgment, the wicked receive the justice that is due them, eternal punishment. And in God's judgment, the righteous receive life in the presence of God forever. The righteous receive the incredible grace of their Lord and they see his face. And the theological term for that is the beatific vision. We know that no person here on earth can see God and live because we're fallen. But at this final point, we will be made like Christ. All sin will be completely purged from us and we will see God and we will be in his presence forever. Words simply fail when we try to describe how good And how fantastic that will be. And that is our hope. 
But when the foundations are destroyed, what do the righteous do? Well, they place their trust in God. They take refuge in Him. They remain confident that the foundations really aren't destroyed. Oh, sure, the foundations of society may be destroyed. The wicked may appear to be in control for a time. But the only true foundation is Christ. And He is firmly, immovably seated in the heavens as King. He is in control. And when we see Him, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And then we will live with Him forever. In this world, though, we will have trouble. It's expected. It's a given. Like in Acts 14.22, it says, Paul and those with him, they returned to the cities that they had been in, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Entry into God's kingdom and tribulations They go together. That's part of our testing and our refining. We see things a little different today because we live in probably what is the most materially blessed society in history. But Scripture doesn't guarantee that for us. We don't know if it will continue or if it will end in our lifetime or tomorrow. We do see many foundations coming apart. Abortion has been legal now in our nation for almost five decades and has killed over 50 million babies in the womb. Homosexual marriage has become approved and supported by the law of the land. Men are saying they're women. Women are saying they're men and they're having operations to try to make that happen. The whole world has been shut down and turned upside down for a virus. Riots are happening in our cities with little resistance from law. And Bibles are being burned and people are trying to erase history. Many churches have abandoned the Bible. And we could go on and on. Many foundations in our nation have been destroyed. And whatever we see here in our country, we know it's much worse for the Christians in places like North Korea, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, India. For many of those Christians, persecution and death are a daily experience. The foundations of their societies have been wiped out for some time. What can the righteous do? One thing that we should not take from this is that if the foundations are being destroyed, we hide and do nothing. The word refuge, that might make you think of hiding somewhere while the storm blows over. But that's, that's not the idea at all. In fact, it, it might be helpful to think of your refuge as the armor of a knight. The armor is his protection and strength as he fights the enemy. And he works to free the city. So here, this would be like David's counselor saying, take off your armor and run. Not a very wise thing to do in the midst of battle. 
The problem here in Psalm 11 is forgetting who God is and what he says and responding in a panic. The problem is, instead of taking our refuge in God, instead of trusting in his ways and what he says, instead of that, we take matters into our own hands. We respond in fear or we just think we have a better way. What God says just isn't going to work this time. So taking refuge in God is not doing nothing. It's knowing God and his word. It's looking at the situation and responding in faith according to what he says. David didn't do nothing. He was a king. He was the king of Israel. He had a calling to fulfill and he applied himself to that with faith. With trust in God. He fought wars. He built Israel into a mighty nation. So in this psalm, he's not saying, just trust in God and do nothing. No, as as he had a calling, we each have callings as well. As husbands and wives, as parents, as children, employees, business owners, citizens of our nation, our state, as God's people, as the church, God gives us direction in all of those areas. We're not left to just figure it out on our own. But we need to be reading and studying the scriptures and seeking good, godly counsel with discernment. Now, we could could step back and say, well, how do you get to a place where the foundations of society are destroyed? Any society that forsakes the gospel, any society whose people hate God sooner or later is going to be upside down, headed for destruction. The gospel must be the foundation of the foundations. And to get there, we as God's people have to take the gospel to the nations. And that starts with our neighbors. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus already answered the question, who is my neighbor? Well, it's whoever you have the ability to have mercy on and take the gospel to. And in case that's intimidating, taking the gospel to people doesn't have to be a big, difficult apologetics discussion. Last week, I heard a pastor in Ireland talk about the importance of what he calls brief encounters. When he was a kid, he was in church, but he left that all behind very early. By the time he was in his 20s, he was living a godless life. He was a biker headed for a big biker event where he was planning to get drunk and live it up for the weekend. But on the way, his bike broke down. He was in a certain town. As he was angrily walking along the street, a man approached him and said, Can I ask you a question? Are you a Christian? He looked at him, shook his head in disgust, and walked on. And that was the end of the conversation with that man. But the Holy Spirit used that question to nag him for several months. After months of that nagging, without knowing much about the gospel, he turned to God and said, Okay, I give up. I'll listen to you. And he began learning and growing. And eventually, He ended up being the pastor of the church that is right near the spot where that man asked him, are you a Christian? 
He's been the pastor there for over 20 years. So taking the gospel to someone can be a very brief encounter. It's the Holy Spirit who applies the gospel and changes people. Without that, without him working and doing that work, God-haters are always going to do what God-haters do. Hate God and act accordingly. They will always work to destroy biblical foundations or prevent them from being established. None of us are the kind are the king of a nation like David, where we can directly set up those kinds of foundations. But we do each have our place and our calling in this world. And like David, we must be faithful to press the gospel and its effects wherever we have ability and influence. To your neighbor, the one in front of you. And while we're doing that, no matter how crazy and upside down things get, no matter how badly the foundations become, we always have the secure hope. The secure hope of God's judgment. And then we shall see his face. And we will live in his presence forever. So in light of that, be certain that God is Your refuge, nothing else. Not you or anything else you think. Be certain God is your refuge and then make him known and increase his kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the king and the judge. And by your grace, you have claimed us as your own through Christ. Grant us confidence and assurance with you and only you as our refuge, as our armor through the trials and tribulations that we experience here. And give us wisdom and boldness to make the gospel known through all that we do and say. May you be glorified in us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.